Before we begin, let us pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word, as we hear the words that you want us to hear, uh, help us to understand them, be with your servant, help him to help us to understand them, and help us to live them out. Amen. Page 1678, John 15, verse 26. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am no longer, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Now moving on to the Heidelberg Catechism. Question answer 49, which is in the second section called Our Deliverance. Um, and it is the fourth question and answer in Lord's Day 18. Question answer 49. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? First, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Joel. This Sunday is one of those kind of spaces where we, we feel some tension in Scripture and we, 
we feel the tension of, of what the disciples were going through. They were living between the Ascension Day, this incredible day where they, they saw Jesus actually rise up. I mean, he levitated and went up to heaven. And, and they saw that happen right in front of them. And, and as he went, he had promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. So they had this looking forward going on. And they were looking forward to the day of Pentecost. But they didn't really know what that was about yet. They had not had the Spirit come on them yet. They had not experienced the coming of the Spirit. All those tongues of fire that we talk about on Pentecost Day and the, all sorts of stuff that happens to the early church, they hadn't experienced it. And so they're living in this space between Ascension Day with, with Jesus rising up to heaven and all these great promises of what is yet to come. and a recognition that it's not yet come. And as we hear these words today, we're actually living a little bit further in the story. Pentecost has happened so much so that we've heard this, this story and the story of Pentecost that we almost take it for granted. And we live with the assurance that the Spirit is with us, but, but we're looking for that day when Jesus will come back. And the questions the disciples have over there are, are some of the same questions we have over here. And we'll get to those questions this morning. But I'm going to start with a, a different question. What if? How many people like that question? There's a few. What if? On the positive side, there's a few people who like to dream. What if we could do this? What if we could do that? What if, what if, what if, what if? And, and so much dreaming and imagining of possibilities, good possibilities, things that could go right. How many of us actually live in that space? There's a few. Most of us live on the other side of what if, don't we? It's questions like this. What if we're not ready? What if my plans fail? Uh, what if I get caught? Oh, a few Snickers. <laughs> what if a natural catastrophe strikes? And isn't that a question all of us have been asking as we've been watching the, the news reports and seeing the videos come out of Fort McMurray? What if she or he doesn't love me? What if the economy tanks and suddenly I can't provide for myself and we're we're out of resources. What if my health or my loved one's health suddenly fails? And even when we don't use the language of enemies too often, what if our enemies become too powerful to us? What then? What if? How are we going to survive? I mean, despite everything that the disciples had seen, despite everything they had experienced, those are the type of questions, the what ifing that was grabbing hold of them. The disciples, what if? What if Jesus doesn't come back? I mean, think about this for, for just a moment. You've been walking with Jesus for 40 days. 40 days after his death and resurrection, you're excited, right? I mean, he overcame death. You saw him beaten. 
You saw him crucified. You saw them throw him in a tomb. You saw them put a guard, a Roman guard, around that tomb and seal it. And yet, he came back to life. I mean, you had supper with him. You ate meals with him. You hung out with him. You talked to him. You probably hugged him just to make sure he was real. And for 40 days, you were with him. And then he goes away. Suddenly, lifted up in front of your eyes. And he's given you a promise, I will come back, and the Spirit will come to you. But this is kind of three days later now. A handful of days later, the Spirit hasn't come yet. What what do we do? What if he doesn't come back? You know how those thoughts sink in? What if something goes wrong? It's, it's almost like that dream that some of us have that we never really graduated from high school and someone's going to come up to us years later and show us, hey, you missed this and you need to go back. Or if we're telling the story honestly, a few of us when we have those dreams don't have our clothes on either because all those fears come up too, right? It's those recurring dreams, those fears that get inside of us and they, they find a way of getting right into our gut so that we don't know what to do we kind of get immobilized. And, and the disciples are in that space. They don't know what's going to happen. In fact, if you read the rest of Acts chapter 1, they're, they're still kind of hiding out. They're in a room together, in that upper room, that locked space when the Holy Spirit comes on them on Pentecost Day. They've been quietly deciding which, which person's going to replace Judas Iscariot. They're they're still kind of huddled together. They haven't gone out anywhere. They haven't, they're not filled with a boldness and a joy and a hope. They're pretty timid. Pretty scared. They were living that uncertainty between Ascension Day and Pentecost. And our what if is not a whole lot different from theirs. See, we're living with a similar uncertainty, but it's 2,000 years later. I mean, if we're honest, some of us, when we get through our, all our what-ifing and all the fears, and, and we get to that space where we say, what's underneath of it? A huge part of it is, is God going to take care of me? Is God going to be able to handle the situations I fear are coming? Are we going to make it through? Will God be there when I need God to be there? In some sense, we ask that same question. What if Jesus doesn't come back? It's been 2,000 years. Is he going to leave us on our own? Did he forget about us? The text that Joel read has all of this circulating in the background. Jesus, in fact, has, says at one point in here, I have told you all these things so that you will not fall away. We'll come back to that will not fall away because it's an incredible act of grace on Jesus' part that he's, he's saying things to the disciples about what is to come, what they can expect, because he knows it's going to be difficult for them to keep following him. He knows there's going to be times where they're tempted to turn away and fall away. He knows life is going to be difficult. But I have told you all these things. 
when you trace back the, all these things, it goes back to chapter 13. This is one long section. Chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 all takes place in the span of about six hours. The night before Jesus is arrested and crucified. It starts with them gathering in the upper room and, and the Last Supper and Jesus washing their feet and telling them, just as I have loved you, just as I have served you, serve and love one another. And along the way, he, he says to them, he's the only way to the Father. And, and he gets that conversation going. Then show us the Father. But I am showing you the Father. There's this ongoing conversation where he's trying to impress on the disciples what's really important. And he promises multiple times in there, I'm going away. The Jewish leaders are about to take me. But be at peace. Don't worry. I've got you. Don't be afraid. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit multiple times in there. He comes back at another point and, and, and says this, this image, this metaphor of the vine and the branches. Remain in me. That's where you're going to find your life. Remain in me. Even though you're not going to be able to see me, even though we're going to be apart, remain in me. I'll take care of you. And then he adds this. Amid all this assurance that he's giving, all the positive affirmation, he says, and the world's going to hate you. Know this. The world's going to hate you. It's not really a pep rally at that point, is it? All those good feelings we want, all that sense of Christianity, if we come to Christ, life will be good and peachy keen and we'll all be happy together. And it's not. He says to his disciples, his last words to them include, the world is going to hate you. It's pretty, pretty stark contrast. That statement of the world's going to hate you with this statement that he gives them. It's actually written in a command form. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. How many of us could spend most of our relationship with God just on that last sentence? Struggling right there. Our hearts get so caught up. We get so full of trouble. We get weighed down and heavy and we struggle. And some of us get so full of fear. And yet Jesus' words, acknowledging the brokenness of the world around us, acknowledging the struggles we're going to have, gives us this. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. In the midst of of the impending absence of Jesus. He's telling them, he's giving them peace. It's important for us to hear all these things, and including this, the world will hate you, trials will come. It actually comes out a little bit more in the text that Joel read for us. There's a couple metaphors in here about a courtroom-type setting. 
the word in the NIV here, counselor, is actually most frequently used in a courtroom setting, and it is a legal counselor, an advocate, someone who is your defense attorney, who is making a case on your behalf. The advocate will come. That's Jesus' assurance to us here. The advocate will come. Your defender will be with you. When you go through these trials and you enter this space of uncertainty, the Spirit will be with you. The Advocate will defend you. Not only that, will testify on your behalf and you too will be able to testify. You will be given a voice, in other words, an opportunity to tell what you have seen and experienced. It's interesting that He says the trials will come to us. The world will hate us. But the place of testimony, you give a testimony on behalf of someone else. In some sense, Jesus is saying, if you listen carefully, though the world will hate you, it's not actually you who are on trial. The world is putting me on trial. The advocate is there to defend me And you, the advocate, is there to be with you in the midst of this so that you can testify to who I am and that I am with you. You will be thrown out of the synagogue. This actually was one of the worries that they had in that day. We kind of don't take church membership the same way today. We don't get along with the church we're in. We pick up, we move to the next church down the road, right? No worries kind of the culture we live in. In that day and age, if you got kicked out of the synagogue, you didn't do business in that town. You didn't associate with your family. Your family shunned you. They literally would turn their back on you. If you read John chapter 9, this was a real threat that the people were feeling. Jesus comes up and heals a man who's been born blind. And the man doesn't know who healed him at first, just that some guy in the crowd healed him. And then the the Pharisees say, how did this happen? You were healed on the Sabbath. Someone's broken the Sabbath laws here. We need to get to the bottom of this. And as they pursue the guy and talk with him more and more, Jesus ends up revealing himself. and, And the guy goes, it was Jesus who healed me. They ask his parents to come in. Testify on behalf of your son. Was he born blind? Yes. How did he get healed? We don't know. Ask him. He's of age. And the text says in parentheses, they said this, that he's of age because they were afraid to get kicked out of the synagogue because the Pharisees and other leaders had already said that anyone who acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah would be thrown out of the synagogue. Disciples sitting there between Ascension Day and Pentecost, wondering, now how do we live? Jesus isn't with us to protect us. What are we going to do? We're going to get thrown out. They're going to kick us out of the synagogue, and everything that has been meaningful, our whole community, our whole sense of identity is going to be ripped away from us. Fear was real. And Jesus adds these words. Not really comforting, are they? In fact, others will kill you and think they're doing a service to God. It's not something we 
typically live under the threat of here. Typically in North America, we don't live under the threat of somebody walking up to us and killing us because we believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus was telling his first disciples, this is what you're going to live under. This is the reality you're going to experience. And think ahead, just a few chapters in Acts, right? Just a couple chapters later, it may have been a couple years down the road, but just a while later, Saul standing there as Stephen gets stoned to death, giving his approval, the leaders of Jerusalem thinking they've done the right thing. They've killed this blasphemer. Persecution of the early church. Jesus says to them, as he's giving them these words of comfort, even people are going to come and kill you. Know what's coming. Two insights from this first part of the text. One, Jesus knew our questions, doubts, and fears way ahead of time. He knew what was going through the disciples' minds as he was getting ready to leave them. He knew the fears they had and the struggles they would have. He knew it, and he spoke into it, spoke words of peace into it. But he also, he also got to a point where he doesn't promise us a golden ticket if we follow him. He didn't say to the disciples, just follow me and everything will be okay. He said, follow me and everything's going to be a struggle. You are going to suffer. It is going to be a hard road that I'm calling you to walk. You are going to face trials and temptations and things you haven't imagined. It is going to be difficult. I don't know about you, but that's actually good news. Because when I look at things in my life, and even though I've had a very good life, there have been points where I have struggled. I have doubted whether or not God loved me. I have doubted whether or not God saw me and was with me. I've grappled with those things. Up late at night and all night, unable to sleep, wondering if God and this whole thing was ever real. And to hear these words, we're going to struggle, we're going to face trials, we're going to face temptations. There's a word of comfort that Jesus knew that was coming. And he still loved us. And he still chose us. And he still called us. So this is my question as I start reading this, and maybe it's a question for you too. Why do we spend so much energy for got it all together? I mean, from the very beginning, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you're going to struggle. Sunday, got to put it all together. We come up and greet people. Hi, Bill, how are you? I'm having a great time. How about you? Hi, John, how are you? Things are going well, right? One of my favorite authors, Brennan Manning, says the gospel's actually for scallywags and ragamuffins. That's who we are. If we read the Gospels, not only does this invitation come in the Gospel of John, listen to some of these other things that come up. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. If we've got it all together, I don't need them. I can carry the load myself, Jesus. No problem. It's an invitation. Admit you're weary. 
Admit your heavy burden. Admit that this road is difficult. Come to Jesus. Find rest. Mark chapter 2. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. My name's Chris. I'm a sinner. I'm sick. I need Jesus. Luke chapter 19. When the crowds are aghast that Jesus is going to go and hang out with Zacchaeus, that tax collector. Unbelievable. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Help me, Jesus! I'm lost. I don't know my way. I don't know how to get out of this mess I've made for myself. I'm stuck. The sins are too heavy for me. The brokenness is more than I can bear. The pain in my heart is bigger than I ever imagined it being. I'm lost. You hear these invitations again and again and again. Jesus is saying, it's not for everybody who's got it all together. First step of the gospel good news is to come and say, I don't got it together. And when we gather here on Sunday, part of what we're invited to do is say, hey folks, me too. I'm in the midst of this. I'm here not because I've got it all together and life is good, but I'm here because I still need Jesus. At 43 and a half, I need Jesus, and I hope, should the Lord let me to live to be 95 or 100, I'm saying I still need Jesus. We need him. In this text, this invitation in here is an invitation from Jesus to say, we don't have it all together. We don't have all the answers. And Jesus says, I know. I kind of said that from the beginning. It's okay. I'm still with you. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 49 tells us three things about Jesus' ascension. One, Jesus is interceding for us right now at God's right hand. If nothing else, take comfort from that, that right now as you struggle, as you feel pain and brokenness in your life, Jesus is interceding for you. He knows your story. He knows what you're going through. Number two, in Jesus, our humanity has a place with God right now. We're not absent from God. God isn't ignorant of what's going on with us. Our humanity is with him, and that is an assurance to us that one day we too will dwell with God. It foresees the end of Revelation, chapter 21, where it says God will make his dwelling with us and we will dwell with him. Jesus being with God at God's right hand is an assurance to us that the end of the story is us and God living together. Number three, as we look forward to Pentecost, Jesus' ascension means that Jesus is sending the Spirit to us as a corresponding pledge. I love that language. It's a corresponding pledge. It says, just as Jesus is assuring us by his presence in heaven that one day we too will dwell with God, so too the Spirit being with us assures us that one day we will dwell with God. 
because the Spirit of God is already dwelling with us. The Spirit, if we read through the text, will advocate for us in the world. The Spirit will lead us into all truth. The Spirit will become our ongoing connection with Jesus. The end of the passage puts it this way. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he also makes known to you. The Spirit is talking with Jesus. The Spirit is interacting with Jesus now and the Spirit is becoming Jesus' presence to us now. As we experience the Spirit, as we anticipate the Spirit, part of what that longing is is this experience of Jesus being with us in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our doubts and questions, in the midst of our what-ifs. We gain the assurance as the Spirit comes that Jesus has not left us on our own and that Jesus will come back. We live on the other side of Pentecost. We live over in this space. After Pentecost Day, as we wait for Jesus to come back, the Spirit's already come. The Spirit is with us. The Spirit has filled us. This really then, for us, hearing this story of the disciples and Jesus is an invitation for us to do two things, to lament and to celebrate. It's an invitation to lament as we go through trials in which we feel Jesus' absence, in which we experience that gap of him not yet coming back. We're invited to cry out to God and say, God, how long? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come, make all things new. This in me. Take the what-ifs that we are becoming our reality. Take them, make them new somehow, Lord. And as we do, as we journey through those spaces and we cry out to God with all our brokenness, saying, Lord, please come, we actually are testifying that God is still in control, that God is still at work, that God's promise to come and make all things new is still true and effective. We are longing for that day. And we're also called to celebrate those times and moments where we see Jesus' presence with us, those moments where we say, I didn't see him before, but I do now, those moments where we look back over a particularly difficult stretch of time in our lives and we say, wow, he was there all along. We're called to celebrate, to celebrate with the Spirit that God has been faithful, that God has been with us all the time, to give God thanks as Cheryl's prayer started to do, for the many ways that God continues to show that he is with us, continues to show that he is at work. And as we celebrate, we give testimony that God is still at work in us 
and in the world around us. So as we live in this space between Ascension Day and Pentecost and looking forward to that second coming, we live with the confidence that the Spirit is with us. God has not abandoned us in the midst of our struggles, but has entered them with us, that he's interceding for us, and that he's given us the Spirit by whom we can lament and celebrate in each and every circumstance we encounter. Let's pray. Lord, we want our what-ifs to go away. We want to be free of the what-ifs and the worry and the doubt and the fear. And you say again and again in your word, do not be afraid. Be at peace. I give you my peace. Lord, we long to experience the fullness of that peace. You have promised us your spirit and in fact have given us your spirit. We pray that you would fill us, that you would strengthen us, that you would help us to cry out and lament when we feel your absence and to cry out with celebration and joy, giving thanks when we feel your presence. All of that, we pray that your spirit would teach us to testify and to long for the day in which you return, a day in which you will make all things, including us, new. Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.